Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. David Schwartz will join us to discuss The Last Man Who Knew Everything. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Was there one man who was the last man to know everything? Enrico Fermi may well be that person, father of the nuclear age. He is perhaps one of the most important physicists of our times, but yet perhaps less well known than of others of his time, such as Einstein and Oppenheimer. So, what is it about Fermi that makes him such a part figure in the history of physics? Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. David Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is the author of the new book, The Last Man Who Knew Everything, The Life and Times of Enrico Fermi, Father of the Nuclear Age. The author, Dr. Schwartz, holds a Ph.D. in political science from MIT and has worked at the State Department, Bureau of Political Military Affairs, and at the Goldman Sachs in a variety of roles. Again, his new book is called The Last Man Who Knew Everything, and Dr. Schwartz, we're very pleased to have you today on the Rock Science Show. Well, thank you for having me. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating book you've written here, a profile on a fascinating individual, Enrico Fermi. How did you become interested in this topic? I had already always known about Fermi because my father was a particle physicist and did work in fields related to what Fermi did. So Fermi was always a well-known physicist around our household. But in, in 2013, my mom passed me some papers that she found in my father's filing cabinet. He had passed away in 2006. And one of those was a, an essay from a friend of his who had worked with Fermi in Chicago uh, after the war. And I read it and I thought, what a fascinating guy. He had a, this amazing career, one the most important uh, research physicist of his time, a great teacher, lived a fantastically interesting and, and dramatic life, and was involved with some of the most important historical events of, of our time. And here we are, yet so few people remember him anymore. So uh, I decided that after looking at the fact that the last English language biography was written in 1970 by one of his students, Emilio Segre, I decided to see if I could resurrect his, his memory and was, was lucky enough to get basic books to agree to uh, sponsor this biography. Uh, what was it that made him so remarkable as a scientist? And uh, again, why is it that his uh, legacy is faded? He was uh, the last person, I think, who really had a true mastery of every area of physics. It's, it's really extraordinary. Not only every sub-discipline of physics, but, every, but, but across theory and experiment. There are very, very few scientists today who have uh, the knowledge of theory and experiment. Well, no scientists, actually, today who cover theory and experiment the way uh, Fermi did, and I don't think there, it's possible to do that uh, given the current state of of science. Uh, it's certainly not possible to know every subdiscipline the way Fermi did, and he was able to do this because he had this enormously powerful foundation uh, of 
of physics that he developed when he was a kid, basically. I mean, when he, it, a lot of it was, was self-taught. He was also mentored by a friend of his father's, and he had, was the sponge who absorbed all of classical physics first and then taught himself relativity theory and quantum physics uh, in university because there wasn't anyone there who could teach him. And so by the time he got out of university, he had this amazing... Uh, ability to to understand all of physics, and he was able. This is a, this is a key element of his approach. He was able to take tools and solutions that were developed in one area and apply them to completely different areas with very uh, very great effect. And I think that's what made him probably so great. Uh, on top of which, um, you know, he was just an amazing teacher and influenced a whole generation of, of uh, physicists. Five of his students won Nobel Prizes. So um, it was pretty amazing. Now, as to why he is not as well known now as he was in his lifetime, I think, you know, he died very, very young. He died at the age of 53. He was not a, a media hound. And there were no real media hounds in those days. I think Oppenheimer became famous um, because the media latched on to him uh, after the war. And the media did celebrate Fermi as well, but after Fermi died, uh, they began to lose lose some interest in, in his story. He uh, didn't leave any memoirs or any letters, any diaries. And, uh, you know, he's revered in Italy still. Uh, you know, my wife and I went to to Rome and Pisa to, to do some work in the archives there. And wherever you go in, in Italy, there's a, a Fermi Square or a Fermi Road or, you know, a Fermi School or a Fermi, Fermi train stations. So everyone in, in Italy knows knows who he is, but here uh, the memory's faded, and um, you know it's, I, I don't think that's right. You were fortunate to be able to interview students or the influenced. I mean, what were their impressions of him? How what did they tell you about how he sort of mentored them and him as a person? Well, you know the students who I interviewed adored him. I mean, universally adored him. Uh, you know one one student in particular when he was telling us the story of how. Fermi accepted him as a graduate student. Uh, the memory of, of that moment made him break down and cry. It, it was so emotional to him. Uh, he was obviously a, a teacher who could inspire uh, real passion, and uh, I think part of it was his accessibility. He was never a person who lorded his great status over over other over colleagues, much less students. Uh, he always engaged students in, in, you know, in real meaningful dialogue, and he loved teaching. Um, that was part of, of the way he thought about the world. The way he grappled with physics problems was to try to teach them to uh, his students, and he learned through teaching, uh, a remarkable way of doing that. Uh, he went out of his way to, to help students out. Uh, there were several students we talked to who credit uh, their careers, really, to Fermi's generosity of spirit. And one, one woman, actually, who wasn't his student but was a colleague, credits her Nobel Prize to, to Fermi. Uh, she was struggling with the problem of how to describe uh, the, the shell model of of neutrons and protons within the atomic nucleus. And Fermi came in and they were talking about the problems that she was having. And as an aside, he, he said, well, why don't you uh, 
consider spin-orbit coupling, which is a, an idea that relates the spin of the individual atoms in the nucleus to the overall motion of the nucleus. And, you know, she, the, the light went on in her head. She said, Enrico, that's, that's the solution. And, um, and later on, when she wrote up the paper, she asked Enrico Fermi to co-author it with her because he had given her the idea, and he refused. He said, listen, you did all the work. You've been working on this for a long time. You did all the work to demonstrate that spin-orbit coupling is the solution to the problem. If I put my name on this paper, everyone will think of it. It was I, it was I who did it. And so he refused to have, uh, have his name on the paper, and she ended up with a Nobel Prize in 1963. That's the kind of generosity and that... that I think really inspired his 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 colleagues and his students in in the United States. There is a little bit of a difference between the way his students in the United States and the students in Italy remember him. I didn't interview any of his students in Italy because they passed away, but the students in Italy tended to they they loved him as a mentor and as a uh, as a leader. But I think that he was a little bit more distant. Uh, in those days to his students. He loved going out with them, uh, hiking and, um, and picnicking, but he didn't want to get involved in their personal lives and their personal troubles. Was part of that change, do you think, because of the history of what happened for his move from, from Italy to the United States? I think that changed him in the, as a person. I think the move to the United States changed him as a person. I think that he felt more relaxed and open as a person in the United States because the way science was done in the United States was a little bit more relaxed and a little bit less hierarchical. I think that he adopted one of the great students of, of Enrico Fermi in Italy, a man named uh, Roberto Vergara Caffarelli, explained to me that he thought the difference was that Fermi became an American, and in Italy he was an Italian. And so in Italy he was a little bit more formal and a little bit more uh, distant from his students. And in the United States he saw that everyone was a little bit less formal, and he adopted that with enthusiasm. It was, I mean, I think, as you suggest, I think it was uh, a matter of coming to the United States. I think it was also a matter of mellowing and being more comfortable with his own position in the field. Uh, of course, he's famous as being a participant of the Manhattan Project. What was his impressions or his views on this project and his participation in it? You know, that's, that's a subject that we can endlessly speculate on because, frankly, he never wrote a word of what he thought about the Manhattan Project. He wrote a little bit about his activities in the Manhattan Project. And, you know, he was there from the very first. He and Zillard did the very first experiments demonstrating that chain reactions from the fission of uranium were, were possible. And, of course, his great famous experiment was done at the University of Chicago where he created the first sustained controlled nuclear chain reaction with Szilard and a, and a host of other, other physicists. So those, that experiment and the work that he did afterward was extremely important in the development of the Manhattan Project and the development, ultimately, of, of both nuclear reactors and, and nuclear bombs. But, um, you know, he never really spoke about what he thought about the, you know, the overall ramifications of the Manhattan Project. I think he understood the enormity of what he was doing I know he did. And as the project neared completion, he he showed signs that he was of disquiet over over what he and his colleagues had unleashed about or were about to unleash upon the world. But um I think he felt that 
he was in a race with Germany. Germans had uh, some of the best physicists in the world working to beat the United States to the development of nuclear weapons. And he felt that he had no choice but to, to do what it took to, to get, the, get atomic weapons first. And uh, fortunately for everyone, uh, he succeeded, uh, because I think there's very little doubt that if, if the Nazi regime had developed nuclear weapons first, they would have used it on cities of the West, like London or New York, or perhaps even Moscow, with whom uh, the Germans were fighting uh, on the Eastern Front. So I think you know, there were some very good reasons for participating, and I think that he did his very best to, to make the project succeed. But he understood the magnitude and the enormity of what he was doing sort of a, a necessary evil at the time. I think he, that's the way he would have viewed it, yeah. A- after the war, how did he get on? What was his post-war years like? You know, he's one of these very few physicists who, you know, after Nobel, after winning the Nobel Prize in 1938, goes on not only to do the work in the Manhattan Project, which had some scientific value, but to continue actively and enthusiastically after the war contributing uh, fundamental science, perhaps not as important as the science that he, he contributed before the war, but certainly continued to work on, on how neutrons interact with matter at Argonne Lab and using uh, the uh, sort of a third-generation version of the pile that he had created uh, at the University of Chicago. He thought deeply about issues uh, relating to cosmic rays and astrophysics, and he was one of the very first to do high-energy particle experiments using uh, a very, very powerful cyclotron that had been built at the University of Chicago to explore the, the inner workings of the atomic nucleus. And uh, those three areas uh, really bore great fruit, and he was very active and published many papers up to his death. Uh, Harriet Zuckerman, who's a sociologist of science, or who was a sociologist of science, identified Fermi as one of the very, very few people in science who contributed as much after he won the Nobel Prize as he did before he won. Just certainly not one to rest on his laurels, it seems. No, he, he had a, an amazingly tenacious curiosity, and he never let go of, of, of that curiosity. He wasn't happy with all he had achieved. And in fact, he, 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 when, he, when, he, when he was dying, he, he explained to one of his colleagues that he thought that he had um, completed about half of what he had been put on Earth to do. So, um, you know, he had a very clear idea of the, of the kinds of things that he would have done had he lived. He was a very energetic guy and, and uh, you know, wasted no time during his, his work day and his work week. On the weekends, he loved to go out and, and hike and camp and fish and, uh, and do all sorts of things outdoors. But uh, during the work week, he was, he was a, a very, very energetic and active uh, participant in the scientific process. Some may also know his name because of the famous uh, Fermi Paradox. How, how, how much do you think he really amused about our place in the universe and intelligent life? Well, I don't think he had, yeah, I don't think he spent a lot of time thinking about this. The Fermi Paradox is this uh, notion that, you know, if interstellar travel is possible at very, very high speeds, say speeds approaching the speed of light, uh, and if there were uh, intelligent life forms that could do this, you know, they would have arrived here by now. And that was a an observation he made, just a sort of a back-of-the-envelope calculation. And he, uh, you know, he famously said, where are they all? 
and people realized what, where he was coming from and, and found it very funny. I think later on he, he speculated that perhaps the solution to the problem is that when civilizations get advanced enough to do this kind of travel, they, they may destroy themselves uh, through war or something else and um you know it's sort of a pessimistic view of why why we haven't been visited but i don't think he 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 was deeply involved in in that kind of research he certainly you know it was it was it was a off it was a back of the envelope calculation that he did and he thought it was interesting but he went on to do his his real physics you did uh, an enormous amount of work in, in this biography, and you came across a lot of new information. What, what was it, some of the uh, that surprised you in your research on Fermi? Well, the thing, one of the things that always surprises me when I think about this, and it's not really new, but it's just in the context of what's going on today in our world, he was an enemy alien at the heart of the Manhattan Project. I want to repeat that because it's just so bizarre. He was an alien enemy, a citizen of Italy. We were fighting a war against Italy, and he was at the very heart of the Manhattan Project and one of the key people involved in the Manhattan Project, driving it forward with great loyalty and great devotion. And, you know, you think about the debate in our country about immigrants today and their contributions to American life, and then you think about this fact, it's just astonishing that our country not only brought Fermi, but Leo Szilard and a whole load of other refugee scientists into the most secret project the U.S. military was involved with and gave them starring roles in this project and trusted them to be loyal to our country, and they were. So that was, for me, one of the more surprising aspects of it. And then there are some some little surprises that that leave you scratching your head. Uh, He was buried in in a cemetery uh, just south of the University of Chicago in in 1954 when he died. He was buried between two, directly between two other graves that were already there. There was no room left for his wife. So that when, when Laura, his wife, died in 1978, she was buried. She wasn't buried anywhere close to Enrico Ferris. She was buried about 300 yards away in the same cemetery, but quite distant. And so you, it sort of leaves you scratching your head because, you know, most husband and wife uh, couples uh, uh, arrange at some point so that they could be buried together. Obviously, this either was 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 not important to to uh, the Fermis, or it might have uh, reflected something else. But uh, I, I tend to think it's explanation, which is just it just wasn't important to the Fermis to to be together um, after after death. They were very um, very scientific in their view of of what happened after one dies. So that was a, that was that's a little surprise. The, the final thing I'd like to, to say. I was surprised at how passionate people were about him during his life and afterwards. The passion that reflected in the fact that this graduate student, this former graduate student who was in his 80s when I talked to him, broke down and cried when when he thought about the moment when Fermi accepted him as a graduate student. It's reflected in a, a wonderful tribute album that was created, a two-disc vinyl set after Fermi died called To Fermi With Love, which was created by his associates at Argonne Lab. And you look high and low for that kind of tribute for other physicists 
you know, for Einstein or for Oppenheimer or for others. Uh, but to Fermi with Love is a good example of the kind of, of devotion that he inspired. Uh, I think part of it, of course, was his physics and the way he did his physics and all the things we've discussed already. But I think part of it was, I think he had a very sunny disposition. He may have been pessimistic about broad issues like you know, the fate of, of, of humanity and the ability of, of people to keep control over nuclear weapons. But he was a very optimistic person in terms of his daily life and the way he dealt with people, and uh, very sunny and uh, fun to be around. And I think that had a lot to do with it as well. Well, a fascinating man, a, a fascinating book. The new book is called The Last Man Who Knew Everything, The Life and Times of Enrico Fermi, Father of the Nuclear Age, the author, Dr. David and Schwartz. And uh, Dr. Schwartz, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to talk with you and, uh, and to reach your listeners. Thank you again, and uh, best wishes uh, with, with the book. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.